0: You're
1: in the Waterloop. Waterloop, Waterloop, Waterloop. Waterloop is made possible in part by grants from Springpoint Partners and the Walton Family Foundation. Waterloop. Hi, this is Travis with Waterloop. Water conservation is very important to me, and I bet it is to all of you. That's why I use High Sierra shower heads in my house, and I'm so happy to have them as a supporter of this podcast. High Sierra carries the EPA WaterSense label for efficiency and uses 40% less water than conventional low-flow shower heads. 40%. The model I have uses just a gallon and a half per minute. And because of their unique nozzle design, it's patented. Nobody else has it. It maximizes efficiency of water and energy use, but doesn't sacrifice on performance. You still get a powerful shower. Use promo code LOOP20 for 20% off at High Sierra Showerheads.com. You're in the water loop. Welcome to Waterloo. This is Travis. Excited for this episode to talk about a pending film project, Blood of the West, all about the Colorado River. I'm with J.R. Robinson, the a filmmaker and director of Blood of the West. Thanks for coming on.
0: Yeah, thanks for having me. It's exciting.
1: Yeah, you know, I, I, uh, I think we got connected probably over Instagram um, and I was really stunned by the photography uh, that you were putting up of just the landscape out there in, in the Colorado River Basin, as you were starting to talk about developing blood of the West. And I know right now, uh, this project is is in development, uh, you're, you're raising funds, we can talk about that for sure. Um, but I'm, I'm excited about it. Uh, the story, the photos, everything caught my attention. So definitely looking forward to digging into it. Um, so, so I guess Blood of the West, what is, what is the project here? Uh,
0: so it's, it's kind of morphed over the years, but it's, um, it's basically turned into uh, what I like to think of as the uh, most comprehensive look at the Colorado River uh, that's ever been put on video or, uh, or film. Um, so it's I'm looking at it as being in a part episode uh, series um, for a streaming distribution that sort of tells the whole story of the river from top to bottom and um, lets us sort of dive in deep into some of the issues facing the Colorado River um, mm. looking at uh, each of the seven basin states and and then looking at um, sort of the past present and future of of the river as it goes um, the as I was sort of studying and researching it, like it felt like there's so much story there that I, I wanted to tell it in this sort of episodic format that, that let me sort of dive deep into it. Um, I make the analogy that it's kind of, I envisioned it as kind of um, like Ken Burns civil war, but with drone photography. Um, (laughs) uh, Yeah. Um, Or like, you know, I was talking to someone recently and and they were like, Oh, it's kind of like the last dance and you know, that sort Mm -hmm. of, you know, deep dive into this sort of like, try to get as much information out there as possible and, and do it in a way that um, is for the benefit of the river, which is goal.
1: Yeah. Well, how did you end up focusing on this project and on the Colorado River? I think you've kind of been a bit of an explorer, right? Spent some time out hiking yeah. and in a lot of these places. How did, how did this relationship form?
0: Well, I mean, it's exactly that. It it came about because I was hiking and I was exploring these areas. Um, So uh, the first initial contact with the Colorado basin and the Colorado watershed was um, with my graduate thesis film, actually. So back in 2009, I was shooting my thesis film called New World Water. um, And it was a sort of sci-fi, post-apocalyptic look at sort of what happens to the world when the water runs out and everybody is you know forced to live under the
1: the iron fist of a water company um,
0: not not
1: not too I, far not too far-fetched <laughs> science fiction right like uh it, well see, well some now i don't know <laughs> yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly I don't, I don't
0: know now um <laughs> but i i mean i was looking at it the you know the original script that i got was it was like coal was the resource um and I didn't want to tell a story about coal because it didn't seem timely. Mm. Um, and I wanted to do something that that sort of looked at sort of the environment and looked at um, sort of the contemporary state of affairs when I made it. And um, I had been reading and watching a few documentaries about um, about water and water issues and, uh, and just sort of generally like living in Southern California, understanding that water is so important there and, uh, you know growing up watching Chinatown and, and knowing how important water is to LA, um, that, that became the, the impetus for the, the, for that short film. Um, but I wound up shooting it. I was looking for like a post-apocalyptic landscape and, uh, I wound up shooting it at the Salton Sea. Um, hmm. I had seen some pictures and I was like, Oh, that looks like what I want. And I wound up going out there. And the more I talked to people out there as we were getting permits or finding locations, Uh, the more I started to understand sort of the history and the background of the Salton Sea. Um, We shot at a hydroponics greenhouse and we talked about water issues and and how water affects um, sort of general farming issues in the Imperial and Coachella Valleys. Um, So I learned a lot about it there and then uh, basically Took that information and put it into this sort of fictional thing, but it always kind of stuck with me, mm. and so I started doing some still photography work um, just on my own. I, my first dive into the Colorado Plateau—I drove out to um, to Zion and I spent um, some time out in Zion and fell in love with that place. Mm. Um, but then I went to the Grand Canyon, and I, you know, I just started doing little photography trips out to the Southwest because it was so beautiful. Mm. Um, but every place I went to shoot, it kept coming back to, like, I would read like the placards or I'd read like the things at visitor centers, or I'd talk to like rangers or, or locals and everything kept coming back to water issues, water issues. Um, and so I started diving into it more, uh, and started reading about it more. And over 10 years, I basically, um, have been just sort of obsessed with, (laughs) with <laughs> uh, the southwest and the Colorado basin and and the issues facing it um and I started looking at it as sort of this holistic thing um one of the the places that's most important to me along the watershed is the confluence of the green and the Colorado and canyonlands um so when I decided to do my pacific crest trail hike I I did it because I hiked out to that confluence uh and I was like yeah yeah I could do a big hike I don't, that was a small hike. Uh, I wound up turning it into like a 24 miler, but, um, but, uh, you know, that was, that was like a day hike, but I was like, yeah, like I had just gotten knee surgery the year before and I was, you know, unsure about my, uh, my physical ability to do things again. Right. And so, so that was the sort of the first big hike that I did that I was like, yeah, I could do this. And so that has a special place in my heart and you know, I started reading about John Wesley Powell. I read um Wallace Stegner's um Beyond the Hundredth Meridian, which is an amazing book. Um and I read about John Wesley Powell in that regard, um, and started diving into some of the issues uh in terms of land management and water management, and I became obsessed with that Powell map of of the state lines that are drawn based drawn based on watersheds. Mm-hmm. Um and Like, I I was looking at that, and I was like, you know, and and the more I read about it, it's like, we have this series of decisions, really starting from, like, the 1850s, but even before that, that have all sort of, like, funneled into this sort of mismanagement of of this important river. And then in studying that, you know, you realize just how important the river is. Um, It's 40 million people's drinking water. It's food for most of the country yeah it's the reason we have lettuce this in the winter it's the reason we have fruit in the winter um and if we continue mismanaging it like where does that lead us and and so i started diving into that um and i just i wanted to i'd been out of filmmaking for a few years um i i stepped away from my job in the film industry back in 2015 partly to focus on my still photography and to connect more with the outdoors um but also like it wasn't like the right scenario for me um and so this is my attempt to sort of get back in to telling stories through a, um a motion picture medium rather than just still photography yeah um, blend, and be able blending to sort of
1: blending your uh your yeah. background in film with your you know focus on photography and visual and nature and and all you've learned exactly. Um, yeah. let's, uh, let's take a little trip through your, your storyboard okay. here, um, you know, through, okay. through your kind of That's eight, good. the eight episodes you have planned out. And I'd love if maybe for each one, you could share, you know, a photo that kind of reflects the focus of that, that episode or that part of the basin. I know you're planning to basically kind of go from, from source to sea. Right. Um, and then after we, we take that journey through your, through the film, um, I want to ask a little bit about some of the crazy logistics you have, uh, for, uh, hiking and, and paddling and getting out there to do this. Um, anyway, so yeah, let's, uh, let's start with, uh, how your film will, will kick off.
0: So this is, Gore Canyon, uh, which is along the upper grand in uh, the west slope of Colorado. Uh, so this is episode one. Um, the reason I sort of looked at this is it's one of those sort of last sort of wild, untamed canyons in Colorado. Um, but really the story of, of the upper grand as I see it is is the continental divide Sort of splitting the state in two, and you have this east slope, west slope, faction, or, or uh, dialectic that's going on between the the two uh, the two sides of the Rocky Mountains, um, where most of the water is on the west slope, and most of the people are on the east slope, hmm. um, and really sort of diving into what that means, and um, on a historical um, way of looking at it, looking at the headwaters of the Colorado is as this sort of boundary between cultures. Um, So historically you, you see the Utes were on the West slope, the Arapaho were on the East slope. Um, You see that the mountain ground for hunting, but mostly it was, um, that was a divide that, that separated sort of the Western part of what's now the United States from the Eastern part. and the, the flows of populations went along river valleys and so the, when the youths came in or when the paleolithic people came in to the rocky mountains they came up the colorado river um, which is different from how the europeans did it the europeans mm-hmm. saw the mountains as an obstacle to overcome and they literally came over the mountains into these valleys and started pulling water out to support their agriculture and cities on the eastern side of the mountains Um, so that's, that's sort of episode one is the Mm. upper grand and and I refer to it as the upper grand. So the Colorado here, because that was the original name of the river. Uh, originally it was the grand river and then the green river and then Colorado started at their junction. Um, so the upper grand is a separate tributary in some ways. Um, and it has its own politics and it has its own issues, um, within the, the greater Colorado um, system. Um, the other thing I, I, I'm hoping to, to look at with this is um, this that it sort of encapsulates the entire story of the river as you go from headwaters to, to sea. It is a headwaters episode, but as you sort of follow it from the mountains down to the Utah border, and it's really the state of Colorado is is what we mostly talk about in this episode. Um, as you follow it down to that border, you really see everything in microcosm. You see mountains, you see trans, trans-basin diversions up in the mountains, you see, uh, agriculture versus urban, uh, use. And then, uh, you see down at the bottom, you see some of the water quality issues that we'll deal with down at the end. So it's a good sort of like encapsulation of the whole river mm-hmm. in a small section of it. Yeah. So, so Yeah.
1: Awesome. That, yeah, that, that's great. You got to start at the start, (laughs) right? Yeah. Um, Cool. I, I, what I love about this is that even, uh, even without the film being made yet, you know, the, the way you've laid out these episodes and and have the photos to go along with it and what you've learned, the knowledge you've, you've built from all this research is a, it's a, it's a great educational tour, even without having the film done yet. So that's, that's why I've been so excited about, about this project coming to reality. So. Let's move along to, oh, to episode two. Yeah.
0: Um, yeah. So episode two is the Green River um, and it's another Headwaters episode. Um, but what I find most interesting about the Green River is it's a really excellent encapsulation of Western history within one small watershed. Um, and you can really track the, the history of, of the West as we consider the history of the West. It's what I refer to as the myth of the West hmm. um, because we can track sort of the Eastern or Euro-American expansion from the East to the West just by following the river downstream. So starting at the headwaters up in the wind river range, uh, you, you see that the first Europeans that came over were mountain men, uh, and they were the beaver trappers and the, and the, and the fur trade um, was, was, critical up in the Wind River. And so you can start tracking based on the resource extraction and exploitation of the beaver as the first first overcapitalized resource in the West. So you can start there, you can start moving downstream, and then you get to immigrant trails and the gold rush and people moving across the state of Wyoming and having to ford the river in order Mm -hmm. to get from East to West, and then you continue down from that. And you can dive into Powell's expedition, which started in Green River, Wyoming, and then continued down from there. And you can talk about outlaw culture uh, because hmm. uh, basically all the, like Butch Cassidy, for example, like had all of his hideouts along the Green River, which is fascinating, hmm. but you can tie it back to, again, to water because they, the reason they turned to banditry and turned to an outlaw Way of life is because they didn't have enough water. They were originally farmers. They were they were irrigators, and they couldn't get enough water to actually have a sustainable farm. Um, so so that's part of Western mythology that is all centered around water. Again.
1: I I did not um, know that. That is that's fascinating. Yeah. And then you know you just yeah. look at a pic. You just start to look at a picture, and just you know I'm, I'm always just stunned by the Western landscape. It's just so gorgeous, mm-hmm. and even even a photo like this, uh, just mm-hmm. inspiring stuff.
0: Uh thanks. Yeah. Yeah. This is Flaming Gorge. Um, mm. which is, uh, you know, there are two dams in Wyoming that, that we're looking at, but Flaming Gorge dam is the biggest and, and it's one of the first real instances of, of a dam really destroying a, a really important ecological place. Mm. Um, so the way Powell described Flaming Gorge, we'll never see that again, which is um, one of the interesting things. Um, yeah. And I and I call it I call it the myth of the West because um, the way I, I see it is kind of um, it's a propaganda system that that was set up, you know, throughout the 1800s using the mountain men, using the outlaws, using the emigrant trails, using this myth that we have infinitely exploitable resources in the West to pull people out there, to expand the borders of the West, to achieve Jefferson's ideal of a coast-to-coast country um, and to capitalize on the treaties and the, the, purchases, the land purchases that we have made. So mm-hmm. a lot of it is this mythology built on, oh, if you come out West, you'll, you'll make your living and you'll, you'll become rich because there's infinite riches in the West.
1: Yeah. Well, think um, about, it's a, think about even, uh, yeah. think about even now, right? Like people still are flocking to Arizona and Las Vegas and mm-hmm. Colorado and, and, uh, you know, Southern California, um, thinking that, oh, there's plenty, there's, that's, there's no resource restriction. There's no issue. Meanwhile, you know, water scarcity is getting to be at a really critical level. So it's, it's interesting exactly. people still head out that way, you know?
0: Yeah. Well, and you have this sense of rugged individualism, which, mm. hey, I'm all, I'm all for people thinking that they can be self-sustaining and self-supporting, and, and I would like to think of that myself. <laughs> um, but the reality in the West is that um, everything is sort of propped up by resource scarcity and, and by um, everything is, is limited in terms of how much su- sustainability and how much you can actually control your own destiny because you are reliant on the realities of what it means to be on the West side of the Rocky mountains. Sure. So, right. uh, episode three is Canyon country. Um, this is, uh, really the Utah section of the Colorado river. Um, so it's about the confluence of these two initial tributaries, the grand and the green and how they become one. But also it's, it's a, a series of dialectics that's set up throughout this episode, which I th- find really interesting. Um, the first is the transition from a resource-based econ- economy in the region to a recreation-based economy. Um, so the rise of the recreation industry is really well encapsulated in Canyonlands and Arches and, mm. and Lake Powell um, and shows this sort of new economy in the West, um, that is still growing and is still, and is increasingly the most important industry, um, for these States. And what does that mean, um, for the future of the river? Uh, but it's also, so I talked about dialectics. You're looking at uh, a story of two Canyon systems. You have the, uh, basically the cataract Canyon system, right? Um, which is the area around Canyonlands national park. And then you have the Glen Canyon system, which is the area now submerged in the Powell. Um, So that's a dialectic that I'm looking at. It's two rivers, right, the Green and the Grand, coming together. Um, So the difference in the way those two rivers are managed, um, both on a local and a federal level. Uh, And then you have two different cities, one that's Moab and one that's Green River, Utah. Um, Those are two towns that are, Going in opposite directions um, from my perspective. So Moab's on the rise because they have transitioned their economy primarily to a, a recreation economy. Green River's on the decline because they are still holding on to a lot of resource extraction, resource-based capitalization on agriculture and things like that. Hmm. And then you have cat- Cataract versus Glen, um, which Uh, Canyonlands versus Glen Canyon National Recreation Area is another dialectic in terms of federal management over these areas. You have two federal agencies that are managing these systems in very different ways, uh, and you see it ecologically. Canyonlands itself is one of the richest desert ecologies that you can walk through, Um, and it's fascinating to go through all the crypto soils and um, see that you have a thousand years of growth like just within a couple inches of cryptobiotic soil but then you go down to glen canyon um and you see the stark white walls of the decrease in lake powell and and the canyons flooded and the the layers of history and and ecology that have just been buried under water and accumulated sediment at this point yeah Uh, one of the really interesting people we talked to Um, In Moab, and I I interviewed him once back in September, I'm hoping to interview him again, is is Mike Dehoff, and and he's done some really interesting work um, with his organization called Returning Rapids, where he's basically going in and taking old, like, historic photos of different rapids in Canyonlands pre Glen Canyon Dam. And he's going back now that Lake Powell is receding and he's rediscovering them and like finding out where they are and, and seeing that as Lake Powell recedes, like nature is like within real time, um, having this rapid transfer back to its native ecologies. You're seeing native plants come back. You're seeing native wildlife coming back. You're seeing beavers in the canyons where the beavers had long ago gone. You're seeing willows replace tamarisk that kind of thing you're seeing beaches develop mm. um so it's you're seeing it it's like in this expedited or expedited time frame that you're seeing like the return of the canyons as you progress south of cataract canyon into what was like powell as it starts to recede. so it's a really fascinating um look at the, at the
1: ecology there i love that, that that you have kind of these two different paths right uh, you know toward Continuing yeah. to just put the pressure on water and extract resources versus, hey, let's, let's try to be more balanced with nature and enjoy it and, and yeah. recreation and so forth. And that's, you know, it's embodied in this episode in this area, but that's, that's like the, the choice facing the West in a lot of ways. Right. Um, that's, yeah, that's really yeah. interesting. And I
0: think it's really well encapsulated here. So, um, so this is, this is a photo of Canyon de Chez National Monument. Um, this is like one of my first memories as a kid was actually like hiking down into Canyon de Chez. I was like, wow, before. it was amazing. Wow. Um, but Canyon de Chez is like, I, the reason I picked this photo as opposed to somewhere else along the San Juan watershed, which is what episode four is about, um, is it's, it's this really fascinating encapsulation of the ancestral Puebloan cultures, um, which we're diving into in this ep- episode. Um, and the the reasons for their disappearance from the area are um, not really disappearance because they to evolving into other cultures, um, but uh, but the the reasons for that were basically there they went through a 200 year drought um, that is being mirrored today like the drought or the aridification that we're seeing now uh, in the southwest is um, the the largest such event since the eradication that drove the ancestral puebloans out of the region. Um, so it's it's a cool way of looking at that, um, but it's also about um, the native tribes that rely on the water of the San Juan, um, the Navajo, the Hickory Apache, uh, the Southern Utes, um, the to some extent uh, the Zuni that we're probably going to touch on them on episode five. Um, this is like our chance to really dive into the issues f- facing Native Americans uh, in the region um, and along the watershed in general, um, because the Navajo Nation is the largest, um, the largest population of Native Americans in the country. Um, and um, all of these different Natives, uh, Native groups and Native tribes, they rely on the San Juan primarily for their water. And the, the San Juan itself is one of the most over allocated rivers in the watershed. Mm. Um, the, you know, the, the San Juan is really the story of, of sort of what this balance between, um, honoring native tribes and, and respecting their rights to water versus, um, you know, where we're, where we've been going and what we've been doing is leaving them out of the conversation. Um, and I'm hoping to talk to as many Native peoples as possible uh, about this. Um, you know, one of the other really fascinating things about Canyon de Chez and another reason why I think it's such an important place, even though it's not directly on the San Juan River, um, the Canyon de Chez is where Kit Carson um, led a massacre um, that basically forced the Native Americans to do... Or, the Navajo to do the, the long walk and then mm-hmm. um, sign the treaty that sort of set the native, the Navajo nation boundaries. Um, Kit Carson going back to episode two was a mountain man and his exploits as a mountain man were one of the main reasons that that Euro Americans started coming west. So just have him pop up again in our history mm-hmm. as this sort of Indian killer um, as he liked to be uh, known. Um, mm. is is this really sad like interesting story and it's an encapsulation of, of a lot of the ways that we've treated these native tribes for so long so, sure. Um,
1: sure.
0: so that's episode four episode four is is really about the the native peoples of the four corners region
1: yeah and like you said you can't tell the story of this region of this place without a, a giant amount of time uh, with their voices involved so
0: so episode five is the Grand Canyon um, and You know, there's a hundred documentaries on the Grand Canyon. There's a hundred (laughs) stories on the Grand Canyon. Um, You know, and and part of it is, you know, like there's a story that follows the river and you can raft the river and you can see the Grand Canyon from that perspective. And when you're at the base of the river, uh, I've only hiked down into it. I haven't rafted it, but when you're, when I've hiked in, like, it seems like this impenetrable castle, right? You've Mm -hmm. got these... High walls on both sides that are just like so immense that it doesn't feel like anything can actually penetrate and touch the river and affect the river. Um, but in reality, if you look at the peripheries of the canyon, there are so many threats to the canyon that um, that are really scary and and really concerning when you really dive into um, some some of those issues. So. What I'm hoping to do with this is look at um, look at those edges of the canyon, right? Mm. To have a central through line that follows the river from Glen Canyon Dam to Lake Mead, but look at you know the issues affecting uh, the Little Colorado River, for example, on the on the east side of the canyon and the the proposed damming and the proposed um, skyline or or SkyTram that they're looking to do at the confluence there uh, to look at uranium mining, which thankfully like has just been paused at the very least um, by the new administration uh, and its effects on the watershed. If like historically, like at the upper reaches of the little Colorado along the, the Puerco river is one of the, uh, the biggest radioactive spills and disasters in U.S. history, bigger than Three Mile Island, yet we never talk about it. Wow! Um, and it's from a uranium—it's a uranium mine containment pond that the pond that breached its dam and flooded the Puerco River with radioactivity. And the Navajo are still facing um, major health issues because of this this spill back in 1979. I think. Hmm. Um, so uranium mining on the outskirts of the Grand Grand Canyon is this huge issue that affects the entire watershed. You know, if you get a uranium spill up in the Puerto Rico River, you're noticing you're you're noticing radioactivity at the Delta. You're noticing radioactivity in Las Vegas or in the, the water that comes into Phoenix. Um, and these are major issues that, that need to be looked at. Mm. Uh, and then also uh, what we would like to dive into is is talking to the Havasupai and the Hualapai and their approaches uh, to maintaining their rights to their land and their water and how those approaches are fairly different between the two tribes. Um, but still have the same goal in mind, you know, the, the Havasupai are very protective there. They want to um, to close off to outsiders as much as possible um, to sort of protect their language and their, their culture as, as much as they can uh, and their way of life. Uh, whereas the Hualapai have, have seen the economic necessity of inviting people in and um, are bringing in helicopters by the droves into the Western edge of the grand Canyon. Um, And what that does to the ecology, having 300 helicopters fly through Mm -hmm. every day um, is a really interesting story there. So um, I'm trying to like tell the story of the grand Canyon in a way that hasn't necessarily been told before um which is hard um pete mcbride did such an amazing job of it a couple years ago that it's you know like that's sort of like my benchmark that i'm trying to to rise to that level just
1: just get up there Um, yeah well that's you're right there's there's been so many so much done on the grand canyon that you have to find that unique angle but that fits within this broader story you're telling about the colorado river so when you leave when you leave the grand canyon what what do we come to next
0: So the end of the Grand Canyon, you come to Lake Mead, which is created at the confluence of the Colorado and the Virgin River. Uh, And the Virgin River is one of the smaller tributaries in the Colorado system, but in my opinion, it's one of the most emblematic of sort of the contemporary state of of the watershed Mm -hmm. um, in terms of population. So uh, starting up at the headwaters up in Zion National Park, I don't know when the last time you've been to Zion is, but it's... um,
1: 2003. <laughs> it's been a while. Awesome. Yeah.
0: yeah, definitely go back. It's, uh, I mean, I, I try to go back as much
1: as I can. Um,
0: so this was my introduction to the Colorado Plateau. Like I said, this is this is my my happy place, right? This going to Design National Park. Um, but I've had to find ways to go there that aren't just completely filled with crowds. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, I've had to go in off seasons. I've had to go like. Or in the week or, or find times that, that aren't so packed, uh, with people that I can actually experience it in the way that I feel like it should be experienced. And that's a, a common through line that you'll see with a lot of people who love this park. Mm. Uh, it's the, I think it's the fourth or, or third most, most visited park in the U S. Um, but in terms of its size, it's like towards the bottom, mm. um, in terms of of actual acreage, and most of the population that that actually visits the park is along the main stem of the of the the main canyon here, like the Virgin River, uh, the or the North Fork of the Virgin River that cuts through it. Um, and that's important, right? So it's the way I look at the Virgin River is it's an encapsulation of of overuse in terms of maybe. Like, how do we look at sort of the recreation industry at, if it's pushed to an extreme, right? Mm. Uh, Zion's done an excellent job of managing the population that goes through, um, but they're still facing major issues. This year they had a huge um, uh, cyanobacteria bloom, largely created through warming temperatures of the water, which is partially climate change. But also it's it's through some of the Uh, the pollutants that are put in the water through so many people traversing. it, Um, And it was a major health scare in Zion this past year, uh, along with the other, you know, coronavirus health health scare that was going on everywhere. And and so you really couldn't get in the water for, for so long. Wow. Um, And as you look at the amount of population that goes into the, if you go downstream along the Virgin, you see St. George, is the, fastest growing metropolitan area in Utah. Uh, you see Las Vegas further downstream along Lake Mead, and that's another fast growing area. And the reasons I want to touch on the virgin for this population debate is, um, so sort of going back to the north edge of the Grand Canyon, there's an interesting story um, that is used in sort of a lot of um, science Classes or historically has been used is possibly an apocryphal story um, of the story of the Kaibab deer. And um, it's how um, the term of um, carrying capacity has been applied to wildlife. Um, so there's a certain carrying capacity that a, la- a landscape has, that a watershed has, that allows for a certain amount of animals to live on it sustainably Without population issues arising, like increasing disease and increasing in, in issues, as you remove predation and allow population to grow in a deer population, for example, um, you you remove the systems that are kept in place naturally to limit population growth, and then you see an increase in disease, you see mm-hmm. increase in amen, in, in, and all these issues that that affect larger populations in areas that can't can't sustain
1: them so so so
0: where are like, back to people
1: yeah yeah no i was gonna yeah. say so you know we talked earlier about how recreation is is in many ways preferable to resource extraction and development and all this stuff but you can see where it can go too far right and and have some yeah. some unintended consequences
0: yeah and it's not just recreation right it's it's just and i'm not necessarily taking aside on either end of this i'm not saying that we shouldn't have population in these areas mm-hmm. um i'm i'm raising i'm raising a question about whether or not we should think about carrying capacity in terms of human population mm. and and this is like one of the more controversial episodes i think and it's one sure. i've gotten the most pushback on so far um but it is a real question like like If we are going to allow places like you mentioned earlier, places like Phoenix and Los Angeles and Las Vegas to grow exponentially or St. George without the proper measures in place to sustain those populations, what is it going to do to those populations? What's it going to do to the economy? Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. is there going to be a natural breaking point? And that's my concern, right? Like at what point do we get to a a point that it's too much?
1: Sure. Sure. Um, I've, wonder, I've wondered, I've yeah, wondered that but, about the, about, like I said, about these Southwestern cities for a while. It's like you hear about the water situation, but the people keep booming in and it's, it's a, seems like a fair question to have on the table, you know? Um, yeah. Th- yeah. What's the carrying capacity of, of the Colorado river basin and these specific places in it. So cool. What's, what's yeah. next on the journey?
0: Yeah. So episode six, sorry, episode seven is going to be the lower Colorado basin. And this is sort of where I look at, you know, the consequence of all the decisions that were made up upstream. Mm. Uh, And the, the reason I want to sort of focus on that as the story for this area is you have um, a, it's the, it's the terminus of the river, right. Um, But it's also the beginning of a lot of those decisions. Uh, So the Salton Sea, like I mentioned, was my introduction to the Colorado river but it's also the impetus behind the creation of the Colorado River Compact back in 1922. Um, And so because the Salton Sea was created through a burst system of dikes that sort of flooded the Imperial and Coachella Valleys, um, they decided they needed, or California decided, they needed a dam to protect those farming areas. And so they argued for the building of Hoover Dam the reason they signed the Colorado River Compact in 1922 was so they could get the Hoover Dam. That was the carrot that was held out for California. So that was all based on the Salton Sea. Uh, And then you see the the Hoover Dam as sort of the first in a series of damming and controlling measures that goes down the lower Colorado, like Parker Dam in this photo, that creates Lake Havasu, that creates Lake Mojave, um, all the way down to Yuma, and then beyond, uh, when you get to Morales Dam uh, on the Mexican side of the border, by the end of that run, the Colorado River rarely, if ever, reaches the sea in what used to be the most expansive ecological delta in the in the North America, if mm. not um, if not one of the the most expansive in the world. Um, so it's we're really looking at the the taming of the river uh, in microcosm as we look at the lower Colorado. So the natural flow of the Colorado, which I find fascinating is a meander, right? And it stretched over hundreds of miles, similar to some of those meander photos that you see of, of the Mississippi Delta, where sure. it just constantly weaved back and forth. There's no, there's no walls. There's no natural, you know, canyons to keep the Colorado in its flow. So the way they managed that was to build all these dams along its length. Um, and it's a, it's a, it's a really interesting, or interesting encapsulation of how we've completely blocked off the river from A, its natural ecological niche, but also um, completely like isolated into these pools that we can draw off to cities like Los Angeles or Phoenix um, and really sort of pull the water out of the river by the time it reaches Mexico. Um, the second part of the episode is looking at the Gila, refer- uh, Gila River um, and following that down to Yuma, and that being really like just completely used up by Phoenix and Tucson by the time it reaches Yuma. Like, there's not much water that actually reaches the the confluence of the Colorado and the Gila. Um, where at the upper reaches of the Gila, it's one of like the, the most amazing um, natural landscapes uh, in the headwaters there.
1: And
0: yeah, it's it's really kind of. Episode seven is a depressor. Uh,
1: I don't see a way to
0: tell it in another way. Like, uh, I mean, I've, I've had some great conversations with some people in Lake Havasu that are doing some really amazing work. Um, that's part of the, uh, the clean Colorado river conservation society there. Um, and Lake Havasu itself is doing the city of Lake Havasu itself is doing some really amazing work. They were really, since their inception, they've been about preserving water and protecting their, um, their ability and to be sustainable with the water, um, in a way that places like Las Vegas are now mirroring, uh, in terms of no lawns and limited sort of water use beyond just municipal and, and agricultural use.
1: Yeah. Um, so, so then, I don't know. So then how you, you kind of bring people down a little more with episode seven, that's the plan. What, how do you, how yeah. do you wrap up this journey? What, how, what's your, what's your close here? Episode eight is about
0: the future of the river and mm-hmm. it's about sort of diving into deep uh, or diving in deep to into some of the issues that are um, some of the, the projects that are being done to actually improve the river. Um, and I've had a lot of really fruitful conversations with a lot of organizations um, that are doing some really amazing work. Um, looking at technologies that are being adapted. Um, we need to be, looking at alternatives potentially to diversions and dams and continued storage, um, you know, and look at ways that we can sort of live in balance with the river. And so I think that's one of the things I'm most interested in, in looking at is like, how can we take a cue from, you know, the the 35 tribes, that I've identified that, that sort of use or has have historically used Colorado river water. Um, how can we take a cue from, from the way that they have used it and used it sustainably? And how can we apply that to the way we use it now? Um, which mm. is unsustainable. Yeah. Um, and that's, that's the, the biggest thing that I want to sort of dive into in episode eight is like, how can we be more sustainable? How can, like, what are the things that are being done practically
1: to make us more sustainable and able to live with this water better? sure sure yeah yeah. focus on solutions there um yeah so and have it be
0: positive right
1: yeah yeah totally i guess uh, the last thing i want to ask you then is um how can people help this film come to reality um you know i mentioned that you've got this all scoped out it's an incredible plan i'm psyched about it that's why i wanted to talk to you uh a to learn a ton you you're obviously like (laughs) to have done so much work and so much research but um i I really wanted to elevate this project in hopes you know of of helping it uh be the best success it can be so what where where do things stand what what can people do to help
0: Uh, we have our website blood of the uh so uh, if you go there we have a funding page that has links to uh our our crowdfunding options Um, we're accepting donations through Patreon, Indiegogo, and direct donations through PayPal. Um, But we're also trying to reach out to companies, organizations, um, people with an interest that want to donate to us. Um, My contact email is director at Blood of the West. If people want to reach out to me, reach out to me. Um, I answer all my emails, uh, hopefully in a timely manner. (laughs) Um, But really, I, I want this to be an open project for anybody who wants to contribute or to be a part of it. Um, We're a nonprofit production. Uh, Like we're at the final stages of getting our 501 C three. So everything that, that we make will either go towards the production and operating costs of the documentary, or we'll go back into the river and to native peoples along the river. So uh, it's really, this is a labor of love for the Colorado river and for the Colorado watershed as a whole. Yeah. And, uh, and if I can, if I can do something good for the river, that's where I want to be.
1: Fantastic. Well, uh, yeah. I, I look forward to staying in touch and, and tracking the progress and, and, uh, connecting with you out there in the West at some point, uh, post COVID here and, uh, exploring some of these places. Um, but uh, yeah, I'm definitely, I look forward to sharing this episode with people and, and hoping that, uh, it helps find some more of that funding and raise attention. Cause this is a, a very unique project right uh the the scope of it that the depth of it the angles of it um and you know judging by your photography i think it'll be it'll be beautiful to watch too but uh jr thanks a lot appreciate yeah appreciate you
0: yeah appreciate you too yeah and keep up the good work you're doing i listen all the time so yeah thanks Um, yeah look at uh, maybe not looking forward to listening to myself, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> but we'll see. Yeah. We'll see. I, I'm hoping you can make magic happen. And,
1: and uh, we'll try. We'll try. All right. Thanks. <laughs> All right. Awesome. Thank you. Waterloop. Waterloop. Thanks everyone for listening to today's episode. A special thanks to Waterloo supporters, Springpoint Partners, and the Walton Family Foundation. The Waterloop Podcast is sponsored by High Sierra Showerheads. The smart, stylish way to save energy, water, and money while enjoying a powerful shower. Save 20% with promo code WATERLOOP at HighSierraShowerheads.com. If you like Waterloop, please subscribe to the YouTube channel or your favorite podcast platform. Follow us on social media and visit Waterloop.org to sign up for updates. Waterloop, Waterloop, Waterloop.
0: Waterloo, Waterloo, Waterloo.